0: Okay, so uh, we're, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. Um, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life. Uh, sometimes the Bible uh, gives you different accounts about the same set of events. Um, so, for example, like there's the Old Testament, there's the, the book of Kings. But then uh, there's also the book of Chronicles. They're both kind of about the same events. You get them, you know, almost twice, but then there's sort of a different angle uh, as you read each one. Same thing with the life of Jesus. So uh, you've got four of these biographies of Jesus' life that tell you about what he did, what he said. And we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I'm actually pretty excited about this. Thrive has never actually done this before, going through one of the Gospels like this. And um, just... uh, how to, how, to, how, to, how to give an introduction to this book. Um, let, me just, let me first of all just tell you uh, why uh, we've, we're, we're doing the Gospel of Mark. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things that are really good to look at in Scripture. Uh, there's the letters, there's, there's the history books, but, but this is a book that is just all about Jesus. <laughs> it's just all about Jesus, um, and there is probably nothing more important than knowing um, just who Jesus is, what he did, what he said. And so um, for the next several months, we're just going to be soaking in who Jesus is, what he did, what he said. And here, here's, my, here's my, my dream. Here's my heart. Um, I, I would dream about Thrive being the kind of community uh, that can't get enough of Jesus, number one, and actually um, a kind of community that can't get enough of each other, you know, one of the crazy things is that if you look at, like, what the early followers of Christ were like, they couldn't get enough of each other. So, like, in the book of Acts, they would all go to the, to, to the temple to worship in the morning. It was kind of like going to a church service. And then in the afternoon, they would be at each other's houses. Like, they would, they would just be spending their, 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 all of their time together because they were so transformed by the love of Jesus that they actually began to love one another in such a way that they just couldn't get enough of each other. And so I really pray and hope that we would be the kind of community that can't get enough of Jesus and that can't get enough of each other. So uh, that is why we're doing the Gospel of Mark. And I want to start tonight by just giving a little introduction to what this book is about. And I want to first of all look at uh, Mark the man. The reason why this gospel is called Mark is because Mark is the person who wrote it. And uh, anyone, anyone here just uh, know anything about who this guy was? Um, any ideas about Mark, the author of this book? If you know anything about him, just shout it out. What was that, Sean? His name was John Mark, yeah. So he was one of those guys who had two names. Yeah, John Mark. Uh, Elena, do you say something over there? He, well, so he very well could have actually seen Jesus. Uh, Many people think he was actually there in the garden. He was not one of the 12 apostles, but uh, this actually is is important. He uh, was most likely a disciple of the apostle Peter. Uh, And one of the reasons that uh, you can say that is that uh, if you look at uh, one of the letters of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, there's a little part there where Peter mentions John Mark. So he says... um, He's talking about just all the people who are sending along their greetings with the letter. And he says, uh, They send you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. So, Paul or Peter uh, calls John Mark his son. So, like his son in the faith. This was probably a guy that Peter got to lead to Christ. And so, uh, that's one of the reasons why, according to church tradition, the gospel of Mark was actually sort of the personal memoirs of Peter, and Peter just, uh, you you know, had Mark help write them down. So, uh, people say that Mark got his information from the apostle Peter, who uh, lived with Jesus, who knew who Jesus was and what he did, what he said. Uh, and on top of that, Mark, um, you know, Mark was the kind of guy who I think maybe a lot of us could relate to. You know, I know there are a lot of people here, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people who have grown up um, going to church, maybe come from a family that also went to church. And this was a little bit like Mark. So Mark um, Mark had a mother named Mary, and she was a noteworthy follower of Jesus. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 12, uh, there's a part where there, there are a bunch of Christians who are gathered at uh, the house of Mary, uh, this is Acts 12, 12, which I think is... Uh, yep, there it is. So uh, this is a story where um, it mentions Peter going to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So so Mark is a guy who's got a, uh, who's got a mother who's a Christian, and so he chances are probably had like heard about Jesus maybe secondhand, maybe even um, you know there's some people who think that he might have been present in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe he actually knew Jesus personally. We, we're not totally sure. but the point is he was a guy who um, probably had a lot of like secondhand exposure to Jesus, but may not necessarily um, have really had quite as solid a faith himself and the reason that I say that is because uh, a little bit later on, what you find out is that Mark is one of the traveling companions of the Apostle Paul. So, in the book of Acts, um, in chapter 13, there's a part that talks about Paul and Barnabas, and they're on one of their missionary journeys. And it says um, that John was with them as their helper, and that, that's John Mark that is talking about there. So uh, Mark, you know, maybe because he you know, was kind of connected to all these early Christians, he was kind of an insider, he gets taken along by Paul and by Barnabas to kind of help them as they're telling people about Jesus. But partway through the journey, he abandons them and he goes back to Jerusalem. And this actually is such a big deal that it causes this major division between the apostle Paul and Barnabas. If you go to Acts chapter 15, uh, there's this other little nugget about, about John Mark, and you find out uh, that because of Mark, Paul and Barnabas, here, let me see if we can, uh, there it is. Yeah, so... Mark has abandoned Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas get into this argument. It says, uh, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and then Paul kind of goes a separate way. So here's a guy who, you know, kind of starts out in, in this maybe like prominent Christian family. Um, he, you know, knows the Apostle Peter, um, but, but as he actually is tested, it turns out that, that his, his faith kind of cracks and it, it breaks under the pressure. You know, we don't really know why exactly Mark abandoned him. All we, all we know is that he, he kind of left him behind, he, uh, he kind of went AWOL. And it was such a big deal that Paul thought, man, like, we can't take this guy with us. He's unreliable. He's not trustworthy. He's not faithful. And so Mark was a guy who knew what it was to experience failure in his walk with God. Um, He knew what it was like um, to kind of fall into a rut and to kind of lose his usefulness as a follower of Christ. And, And it could be that maybe you're here tonight, and you feel like, man, I've had that exact same experience where, like, I I I kind of have grown up, um, and and maybe there have been a lot of other people in my life who've known about Jesus, um, but I feel like I've just kind of taken my life in a direction where I've really screwed things up, and how can I ever kind of recover from this failure? Um, And I just want you to look at Mark tonight and just be encouraged by this guy, because at the very end of Paul's life, Mark is mentioned one more time. Um, This is uh, the 2 Timothy chapter 4, if we can put that one up there. This is Paul's very last letter. And look what he says. He says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So we don't know kind of what happens in between now, you know, between then and, and, and now, this, this, this letter here. But somehow or another, like Mark kind of winds up having a, a pretty dramatic transformation to the point where Paul looks at him and says, hey, I want this guy back. Like, he's useful to me in my ministry. So, Mark was a guy who who knew what it was to experience failure and to kind of get off course, but he also knew what it was to be restored um, and to become, once again, someone who was a profitable servant um, in the kingdom of God. And so, what's so cool about that is that this actually um, is kind of coincidentally significant to the gospel that Mark wrote. So what can we learn about the gospel? Well, interestingly enough, to this guy who was kind of the the, the unprofitable servant, but then kind of recovered and became a, a, a useful servant, he was the one to whom God entrusted the privilege of writing the gospel of the servant. And that's just kind of a nickname that you could give the gospel of Mark, because in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is pictured as a servant. You know, all the different Gospels kind of have a different focus. So like in Matthew, Jesus is presented as the king. Um, in the Gospel of John, the focus is on Jesus' divinity, on how he's God. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, a lot, a lot of times there's a focus on Jesus' ministry to people who are outsiders, like, uh, like Gentiles and, 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 and the poor. And in the Gospel of Mark, one of the major focuses is that it shows Jesus as the God- who became man in order to become a servant. So it's the gospel of the servant. Um, A couple other characteristics here, um, and I think there's going to be a few things here on the slides you can kind of follow along. I like to, for all the note takers out there, if you guys uh, like to note these things down, I like to put them up there for you. So uh, characteristic number one, it's the gospel of the servant. Number two, it's actually the shortest gospel, only 16 little chapters. And uh, on top of that, it's also um, a gospel that kind of seems to have had a particular audience. It was written to the Romans, um, and one of the reasons for that is that if you read through this gospel, like Mark a lot of times is explaining things that, that a Roman audience wouldn't have known, so he explains a lot of the Jewish customs that all the Jewish readers would have understood, but if you were a Gentile, if you were a Roman, probably not so much sometimes he translates uh, phrases. So like, you know, when Jesus is on the cross, um, you know, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and Mark's gospel actually records like the literal words in the, you know, the Aramaic language, the language that Jesus actually said those words in. So you actually, you know, you get exactly what uh, his his real words were. But then he, he translates those words because he knows, well, if you're Roman, you're not going to know how to read that. So There are a couple little indications here that Mark is is writing uh, to people like us, you know, people who uh, were not Jewish, who were Gentiles. Uh, One other characteristic is that there's a focus uh, not so much on um, Jesus' words, but more on his action. So, um, you know, there are lots of different kinds of people in the world. There are some people who are real talkers, and then there are people who are real doers. Um, So the Gospel of Mark is written for all the doers out there, because it's a short, punchy little gospel, you know, it just kind of moves from scene to scene really, really quickly. And, you know, it doesn't include long, long speeches, you know, like there's no Sermon on the Mount, for example. Um, And instead, it focuses on what Jesus did. Um, It, you know, doesn't include things like his genealogy, doesn't include the stories of his birth. Um, It includes... Uh, not a bunch of parables, you know, Jesus talking, but instead it includes lots of miracles. There's 19 miracles in Mark, and there's only four parables. So there's a focus on, on Jesus' actions. It's a zippy little gospel. Uh, and then finally, uh, just some 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 themes. Like as you're reading through this gospel, here are just some things that you might want to notice as you're looking at this. So uh, number one, which we've already mentioned, is the focus on Jesus being a servant. Um, So, if you wanted to pick out a key verse for this gospel, um, it would probably be Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 45, uh, which is uh, up on the screen, hopefully, here. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I just want to, like, dwell on that for a minute. It's pretty amazing to think about the fact that... um, You know, let me just ask this question. Raise your hand here tonight. If you have, so imagine you have the option of applying to any job that you wanted, okay? And you knew that you were gonna get accepted. Like, doesn't matter what job it is, could be like CEO of Amazon. Like, you would get the job. Now, I just want you to, like, actually, let me do this. What what would be some of the dream jobs in the room? What would you apply for? Shout it out Anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologist. You know, okay. That's Rachel. That's really cool. My dad is an anesthesiologist. I should, I should tell him that. Uh, whoa, 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 who someone said something else. Comedian. What was it? Comedian. Comedian. You're well on your way. Okay. Uh, what was that? Stay at, home, dad. Stay at home, dad. That's good. That's good. Yeah. How many, Devonte? How many kids do you want? Eight. Eight. Oh my gosh! I hope Grace knows this. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone else? Oh, man, you guys are quiet tonight. Park Ranger. Park Ranger. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, ra- raise your hand if like the number one job that you would apply for would be the job of a lowly servant. You know? Like you just have to be the one to like clean toilets and sweep the floors and, and, and be ordered around by all your superiors. I don't know that that would be a dream job for many people. What, what I want you to notice is that this is the job that Jesus left heaven and came to earth in order to do for us. He was the only one who deserved to have all of us serving him, and he came down to serve us. And in fact, there's a pretty amazing uh, little bit, and in, in actually it's the Gospel of Luke, and it, it, it's, it's talking not just about like what already has happened about Jesus coming, it's talking about when Jesus comes again. And when we're, um, you know, with him in heaven, you know what it says there? It actually says that even then, the Son of Man um, will be a servant. That he will wait on those who have loved him and followed him. Isn't that incredible? So, so this is the gospel of the servant. That's one of the, one of the themes. Another theme is that it's a gospel of, uh, that shows Jesus is the Son of God. So there are a lot of different titles that Jesus has in Scripture. Sometimes he's called the Son of Man. Um, and, and in this gospel, the, the, the most probably significant title that he has is Son of God. Son of God. Now, you, like that phrase can mean a lot of things, uh, but, but one thing that it kind of can just mean you know, self-evidently is that, look, if you're a son of a father, let's say. That means that you have a kind of access and a kind of relational connection to your father that, that someone else wouldn't have. You know, so if you're like a three-year-old kid and you wake up at night and, you're, and, you, and you need a drink of water, like you, um, if you, if you go and like knock on your parents' door and you say, mommy, daddy, like I'm thirsty. Can you get me a drink of water? You know, they might say, oh, "I'll go back to bed. But, but no, like, if you, a mom or a dad is going to be like, you're my son, you're my daughter. Like, I am going to get up out of bed, and I'll, and I'll get you that drink of water. Or, you know, there's a, another, like, famous uh, story of this. I, th- I think it was when, when John F. Kennedy was in the White House. There was this famous picture of, of John F. Kennedy's son who's, like, playing beneath the desk of the White House while his dad is sitting at the desk, you know, doing all these important presidential things. Like, if you're a son, you have a special kind of relationship to your father that other people are not going to have. And this is one of the things that's meant by son of God. Jesus was in perfect relationship with the father. All that belonged to the father, the father entrusted to the son. All that was entrusted to the son, the son gave back to the father. So, there's a focus on Jesus as the Son of God. The very first verse says that this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Son of God. And then toward the very, very end of the gospel, the gospel concludes with the first time that a human being recognizes Jesus as the Son of God. It's when the centurion is standing by the cross and says, this man surely was the Son of God. So, uh, theme number one, Jesus is the servant. Theme number two, Jesus is the son of God. And then finally, this last one is the theme of what you might call secrecy. Uh, secrecy. So there are a number of places where Jesus will do miracles, he'll do healings. And he kind of surprisingly tells people not to go share uh, share the news, to not tell people about what, what he's done. Now, just question, any, any, any idea why Jesus might do that? Why would he want people to keep it a secret? Any thoughts? There's no, like, wrong answer, so you don't have to, like, worry about. Okay, so Sean, well, it wasn't time for them to know, yeah? Rachel, were you going to say something? Yeah, okay, so the people who are actually curious might ask. Yeah, you know, there's not really an answer given, but I think one answer that I, I think is kind of significant is that Jesus knows that, look, if, if he comes out and says, look, I'm the king, they're going to immediately misunderstand who he is. It's only when you get to the cross when you actually see Jesus for who he fully is. You can't understand Jesus apart from his cross, apart from his sacrificial death and his incredible resurrection. And so in Mark's gospel, one of the things he focuses on is like, wait for the big reveal. Wait until you get to the cross before you kind of pass judgment on who Jesus really is. And then just last thing in this introduction, I just want to throw up an outline. And so if you're someone who really wants to go back and read through this book and get more out of it, write this down, and this might be helpful to you. So the first uh, part of chapter one is the servant presented. So it introduces Jesus and who he is, and we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, The second big section, this is like the, the heart of the book from chapter one all the way through to the end of chapter 10, is the servant serving. And so you see all of these different stories of Jesus stepping into the lives of the the broken, of the hurting, of the outcast, and he heals them. He brings freedom. He, uh, He brings deliverance. So it's the servant serving. The third section, chapter 11 through to the end of chapter 15, is the servant suffering. Uh, because that's the real reason Jesus came—not just to be, um, not not just to teach amazing morals, not just to heal people, not just to perform miracles and signs and wonders, but ultimately to suffer and to die. And then finally, um, the last chapter is the servant vindicated when he was raised from the dead as a demonstration that everything that he did, his his life, his death was perfectly lived in obedience to the Father. Um, that's why people have said that, that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died. And so he was vindicated for that when he was raised from the dead. So there's a little introduction to this gospel that we're going to be in for the next uh, who knows how long. What I want to do tonight, um, just to get into this gospel, is to look at the first part of chapter 1. And uh, to do this here, let's just look at it. Um, I want to ask if maybe there'd be someone who'd be willing to stand up and, and read this for us. Is there anyone here who'd be willing to just volunteer to be a reader? Uh, I see Davey and Sean. Maybe I can just, uh, like, give you guys half and half, yeah? Let's do that. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Sean, um, I'll have you start. Could you read chapter 1, verses 1 to 8? And then, Davy, could you read chapter 1 from verse 9 down to verse 15? And I'm actually going to run you a microphone so we can all hear you.
1: In the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you
2: with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came up from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up from out of the water, he saw the heavens. Next page. Opening, and the spirit, like a dove, descended upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for forty days for being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast and the angels ministering to to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thanks, you hey guys.
0: <laughs> okay, here's what I want us to do. Um, we're going to get into this, but what I want us to do first is actually um, to get a little interaction going here. So, um, you know, in, in in a socially distanced way, <laughs> um, I want you to turn to someone next to you. And I want you to point out Um, just anything in this, in what we just read, from chapter 1, verse 1, down to verse 15, I want you to just point out anything that that, uh, stands out to you, that surprises you, that raises questions. And we're going to take about a minute to do that. So if you're kind of like... Uh, you know, off by yourself, you know, you're not really next to someone, um, you know, and again, in a socially distanced way, go find someone that you can talk to and just look at this passage together and we'll take a minute, maybe even two minutes um, just to answer that question. What stands out to you? What raises questions? Um, Ready, set, start. Okay, I'm going to rally us back together. So, uh, find, you know, stay where you are, find your original seat wherever, uh, you're, you're most comfortable. And, uh, I just want to hear what you guys saw, what you talked about. Just shout it out. Just mention some of your observations, surprises, questions. <laughs> so the gospel of Mark is like the gospel of Matthew for people who don't have time to read all of Matthew. Okay. Yeah. it's a good observation. Yeah. John got put in prison, okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, Not the same as John Mark, but a different John. Yeah, Tristan? Say that again. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So there's some immediate citations from the Old Testament in there. Yeah, okay. Anything else? Any other observations, questions, surprises? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so he's the son, but he's also filled with the spirit. Okay, yeah. Anything else? Going once. Going twice. Yeah, good observation. So you've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all in the same little story there. Yeah, so there's like something related to the Trinity going on. Yeah, we're not going to get into that tonight. So, you know, don't worry if you're like, oh my gosh, this is getting deep really fast. We're not going to go there. Don't worry. But yeah, good observation.
1: Yeah, okay, so
0: that's really good. Yeah, we're going to get there. Uh, Verse 15, there are these two key words, repent and believe. Okay, cool. Well, thanks you guys for uh, just kind of giving some some thought to this. Um, What I want to do tonight is I want to look at this passage through the lens of what happens when uh, God shows up. Um, Now, the reason I say this is because this, you know, if you look at where this is in your Bible, so like here's my Bible and it's open to Mark, you know, so (laughs) there's actually like a whole lot, like actually most of the pages in my Bible are all the stuff that happens before this. So this is not just the beginning. This is actually like a chapter in the middle of the story. And, and so, uh, you know, if you were just to summarize that story really quick, you know, it starts with creation, book of Genesis. And then uh, if you were to jump ahead uh, a little bit further, there's this guy named Abraham. God calls Abraham to be the founder of this new nation called the, the, the Israelites. The Israelites wind up getting stuck in Egypt under slavery. God takes them out of there, called the Exodus, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. Um, They become a nation. He kind of adopts them as his special chosen nation. And then time goes on, time goes on. There are all these different things that take place in the nation of Israel. Uh, Then there comes this season where there are these kings. You've got like King David and King Solomon. And they're ruling over this nation of Israel, and eventually what happens is that the kings become corrupt and they, they, they turn away from God. Uh, they turn away from his promises. They, they cause the people to sin. And as a result, the people have to get sent into exile as sort of a, a, a time out, a time of punishment. And so they're in exile for, in Babylon for 70 years and then God brings them back when the 70 years are over. They come back to the land of Israel. And then there's 400 years of Silence. 400 years of silence where, for all that time, uh, God doesn't speak. Um, you know, th- th- there are different prophets in the Old Testament that were, were examples of God using human beings to, s- to speak his word. Um, but for 400 years, there was no true prophet. And so what you come to when you come to the Gospel of Mark is actually like the, 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 the kind of the, the, the very next thing after the biggest cliffhanger in all of human history. Because throughout this whole story, there's been a promise that God's going to one day show up. He's going to send someone called the Messiah, um, and the Messiah is going to come and is going to reverse the curse. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to, going to set everything wrong right. And so when you come to Mark, and you come to the very, very first part of Mark, and it says that Jesus is here, the Messiah is here. What that actually is, is it's the first time that God has really spoken, so to speak, in 400 years. I just want you to think for a minute, like, what happened 400 years ago from our day? It was like 1621. You know, could you imagine, like, from 1621 to now, like, (laughs) just like absolute silence, like everyone waiting for that long? That's a little bit like what it would have been like to have been around in this day. So, what does it look like when God finally arrives? Um, So, I'm going to look at this just in three ways. Uh, Number one, uh, this passage starts out with um, an announcement. So, God's arrival, it's announced, number one. Number two, then there's an acknowledgement. And then finally, there's an invitation. So, there's an announcement, an acknowledgement, and an invitation. So, first, look at verses one uh, through three. So one of the things that's striking about this gospel is the way it begins. Uh, so John's gospel begins with a prologue. Uh, Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy. Luke's gospel begins with a backstory. All of those things were kind of like, you know, <laughs> beginning, you know be- beginning type beginnings to stories. But Mark doesn't really have much of a beginning. His gospel begins with an announcement. It just jumps right in. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the gospel itself actually is an announcement. Um, the gospel is not a bunch of good advice. It's not, you know, it's just not, it's, it's not uh, just a bunch of rules. It's not a bunch of commands. The gospel is not good advice to be followed. It's an announcement of good news to be believed. And that just makes all the difference in the world. If the gospel uh, were not an announcement, if it were just a bunch of rules, then those would be a set of rules that you would have to follow in order uh, to measure up to God. But instead, the gospel doesn't say that there's a bunch of things for you to do. The gospel says, the announcement is it's already been done. That God has come into the world, and he's been the one to deal with it through what he did on our behalf uh, in the person of Jesus. And so this gospel begins as an announcement. And the announcement, verse 1, is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, um, this announcement, I want to look at this just for a few minutes, because uh, what I want you to notice here is that the gospel, this announcement, and kind of the announcement that, that uh, marks God's arrival here in the story, uh, here's the key. It doesn't fit any of our categories. It doesn't fit any of our categories. Now, let me just point two ways in which this is true. Number one, uh, notice, by the way, who the messenger is of you know, who's making this announcement. It's this guy named John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is probably one of the weirdest people in all of scripture, if not human history. Uh, look at how this guy's described. So like verse six, uh, John, John the Baptist wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts in wild honey. I don't think there's anyone here who's ever uh, eaten locusts and wild honey. Am I, am I right about this? I, I hope I'm right about this. I mean, High in, yeah, they're high in protein. I, you know, I, I like all you guys. I don't want to like think poorly of you. I think I'd not think poorly. I think, you, I, th- I think you'd be a little weird if you were like, you know, someone who regularly ate locusts for breakfast. So, so John the Baptist um, is, is the guy who God raises up to be the messenger to announce the fact that Jesus has finally come. And I, I want to just have us notice how strange this is. I mean, if John were were here today, every single one of us would probably think this guy is such a weirdo. I mean, this guy's crazy. <laughs> if you guys have seen the TV series The Chosen, if you guys have seen this about the life of Jesus, they actually call him in that, they call him Crazy John. And he looks like he's crazy. Why would God do this? Why would God use a guy like John the Baptist who just is like just bizarre to be um, the kind of the the front runner, the forerunner, who is announcing that Jesus has finally come. Cliffhanger. That's right. When in doubt, grab another microphone. Thanks, Stephen. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why 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 Jesus has John as this weirdo kind of uh, be the one to have to to announce that Jesus has come is that it's the way of saying that, look, Jesus is not like you. He doesn't fit inside your categories. And if you try to make him fit inside your categories, you're going to miss what he's about. So uh, John the Baptist is kind of one telltale sign that when Jesus shows up, he's not the Messiah you'd expect. Sign number two is actually this is Jesus himself. Um, so first of all, there's the fact that he's the son of God. Now, now, back in Jesus' day, people were expecting a Messiah, but they weren't expecting a Messiah who what was the Messiah that Jesus was. They were expecting kind of like a political hero, someone who would come and, and kick out the Romans and, and, and liberate the Jewish people. Um, and what they got was more than they bargained for. They got none less than God in the flesh. And so Jesus was not the Messiah they were expecting. John the Baptist was not the messenger they were expecting. And so what what I kind of get from this is that when Jesus shows up, um, and in fact, when the word of God shows up in your life today, in the year 2021, it's never going to be comfortable. In fact, one of the ways that uh, that you know that maybe like you've become a little bit too comfortable with Jesus is when he only says things that you like. <laughs> you can't read the Bible and only read things that you like. Because if if... if if it lets us, you know, take the Bible, if the Bible is really God's word, then that means that it's going to contradict every single person in every single culture. But it's also going to affirm parts of every single uh, person, every single culture. You know, there are uh, certain cultures that really, really are good at the idea of loving your enemies and forgiving your enemies. And they're going to read those parts of the Bible and say, that's great, I love that, but I really don't like all the stuff that says about, like, you know, what, what uh, the boundaries are for, like, uh, marriage and, and sexuality. And then there are other cultures that totally love what the Bible says about those things and says, oh, I'm all for that, but I'm, I'm not for this. And so you can't read the Bible and not have things that offend you. And if you don't see those things in scripture, then chances are you're, you're, you're probably like, without even knowing it, self-editing the Bible. Like you're ignoring or not focusing on all the things that are just uncomfortable for you. Or you're reading the Bible and you're noticing all the ways that it convicts other people, but not how it convicts you. When the word of God comes into a person's life, or if you you put it this way, if you want to actually meet the real God and have an encounter with the living God, then that God is not going to fit inside your boxes. He's going to rub you the wrong way. He's probably going to, to say things that you don't want to hear. But the reason that that's actually a good thing, is that if you didn't have a God who said things that you didn't want to hear, then that God couldn't actually help you. Because if you had a God who just said everything that, that you wanted to hear, you know, if he was just a reflection of you, then if you got into a tight spot, if you actually needed that God to like come and, and, and be more than you are and to get you out of yourself, get you out of your mess, he couldn't do that because he's just a reflection of you. You know, no one wants to be married to themselves, you might think, oh, I want to be married to myself, because that would be easy, but no, like, when you actually realize it, like, you you realize, like, if I'm married to myself, like, that's, you know, that's not a relationship, it's not, it's like, what is it, Stepford Wives, where they, you know, put the chips inside the wives' brains, so they'll do whatever they're told, but they're not real people, it's not a real relationship, if you want to actually have a real relationship with Jesus, then you're inevitably going to be confronted with ways that he doesn't fit your boxes, And by the way, by the way, I think this is actually one of the, one of the, maybe the best proofs for the reality and the existence of God. There was a, there was a, he was a, a German guy, there was this German philosopher, his name was Ludwig Feuerbach, Ludwig Feuerbach, and Ludwig Feuerbach had this idea that God wasn't real, instead he was just a projection of, of, of ourselves so he would say things like well you know we want there to be like this father figure who loves us and cares for us and so all God is is just like that desire that's just been projected onto this imaginary being but here's the reason why I think Ludwig Feuerbach was wrong was because you read the bible and like there's all kinds of things that we would never 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 have projected onto God because they don't make sense we don't like them you know, like God will ask you to do things in your life that do not make sense. Um, I, I I heard a story once. This is a weird story, okay? But sometimes God is weird. Story about a guy who was in church. And as he's in church, he kind of like gets this sense that God wants him to get down in the middle of the aisle in the sanctuary during the message, or during the the the, the service, and to do a bunch of push-ups. He's like, that's really weird. I don't want to do that, that's embarrassing. But he feels like, man, I, I'm just getting convicted. I, I, this is, I've got to do this. So he gets down on the floor and he does a bunch of push-ups in the middle of the service. Well, afterward, um, a woman comes up to him and says, I was here this morning and I was like ready to throw in the towel and completely walk away from my faith. And I just kind of was praying to God. Is like, God, if you're really up there, then I want you to like, get someone in this church to do a bunch of push-ups in that aisle right in the middle of the service. Now, <laughs> I heard that secondhand. I can't vouch for the authenticity of that story. But hey, like the point is, God is going to ask you to do things that don't make sense. That is what faith is. Uh, one of the verses I've been meditating on this week is, trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. You're not wise enough to direct your paths. <laughs> we're not smart enough to know what is going to be the best good for us. But thank goodness that there is a God who is, who's not just wise and not just smart, but good. And that's why he invites us to put our trust in him and to surrender the things that we don't understand to him. So first of all, number one, when God shows up, there's an announcement You know, when his word comes into your life, uh, it's going to be an announcement that is not going to fit your boxes, number one. Number two um, in this story is that there's an acknowledgement. So look at verses four through eight. In verses four through eight, this is talking about John the Baptist and John's ministry. So uh, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, and it says that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, baptism was something that happened back in those days, uh, but John's baptism was different. It wasn't just like a ceremonial washing like uh, sort of the Jews would traditionally do, but but instead it was a baptism of repentance. Now, why would John, um, why would he focus on repentance? Um, Repentance is a word that literally means to change your mind. So it means if you're going this way, uh, change your mind and realize you actually should be going that way. Um, so, last week, I actually shared this story about a time when I really thought I knew what I was doing, and I was in a new city that I didn't know, and I went and I tried to find a place that I had seen on a map, and I, I walked out of where I was staying, I turned one way and thought, I know that I'm going the right way, if I just walk this way for, like, however long, I'll find this place. Well, I couldn't find it, so I walked another 15 minutes, still couldn't find it. Well, finally, like, I realized I'm totally, completely, horribly lost, I have no idea where I am, I'm a stupid guy who doesn't want to use a map. And so I stopped and I turned back and I went the other way. If you're going the wrong way, the first step to stop going the wrong way is to stop where you are and to turn around and go the right way. And that is what repentance is. And so the reason why John focuses on repentance is because what he, what the point of it is, is that look, God is here. Like he, Jesus is, is, is right around the corner And if you want to receive him, the first step to receiving a God who doesn't fit inside of your boxes is to realize that your boxes are wrong. Your boxes are wrong. And that it's not a matter of trying to cram Jesus into what's comfortable for you, but realizing that Jesus actually wants to invite you into something that is far greater and better than you could have ever imagined. And that little shift, that shift from thinking like, it's all about kind of me and my understanding and my agenda to realizing my experience and my agenda and, and what I want is not it's not the not necessarily the way of God God's way and my way are different things, and when you name that that's called repentance as I've been looking at this passage here's the thing that's been really getting me um, you know this is one of the Gospels, right? So there's like a lot of stories in here about Jesus. Maybe some of these stories are stories that you're really familiar with. But I I wanna ask you this, how fresh are these stories to you? Like when you read Jesus say things like, if you wanna follow me, then you gotta take up your cross and come and die with me. Like when you read that, like how fresh is that to you? Or when you read Jesus say things like, it is finished. When he says on the cross that, I've paid it all. There's no more that can be added to my sacrifice. It is finished. There's no more guilt you have to have. There's no more shame you have to have. I've taken care of all of that. Like, do you just kind of read over those words and gloss through them because they're so familiar to you? Or um, do they really, like, go down deep into your heart? They say that the longest journey in the world is this journey from head to heart, like, only a couple of inches, so how fresh are these stories for you? I've been thinking about this and just realizing that, that there can be such a thing as a false familiarity with Jesus. A false familiarity with Jesus where you uh, have heard his name and said his name and read his stuff and, 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 you know, led stuff in things like this and it just becomes so commonplace. The, like just the shock factor of who Jesus really is just completely is lost to us. Um, just for for a minute, just imagine right now like if you were to, on a scale of 1 to 10, just sort of answer that question, how like how fresh are these things to you? How much does it like hit you as though you're seeing it with new eyes for the first time? You know, if, like 1 is like not at all, like this is so old and stale and kind of routine to me versus like you know, ten. Oh my goodness! Like this, this just is. This is the most radical, new, unprecedented thing I've ever seen. I just want you to, like, in your head, answer that question. One of the steps that can get you out of that um, is what we're talking about. It's it's repentance. It's to realize that God and knowing God is not a matter of having a bunch of knowledge. Um, It's not a matter of of simply doing a bunch of cultural things like like being a part of a group like this, going to a church, having Christian friends. To know God is a matter of faith and obedience. And I've just been convicted, realizing how much I know about the Bible or about just the things that Jesus did and Jesus said and how little my life actually looks like I do. Um, Once came across a little account of the church in China, and the church in China they, they sometimes even struggle even to just have enough Bibles. You know, uh, in, in some persecuted countries, there only is one Bible to go around, and so like literally the church members will like, you know, they'll, they'll take the Bible, they'll cut up into individual pages, and each person will just get one page because that's all that they have. And this account of the Chinese church was someone in the Chinese church saying, you know, look, we don't necessarily have a lot of. of of, of resources and knowledge, but we're obedient with what we do have. Are you a tadpole Christian, all head and nothing else? We're like, you've amassed so much information, but there's not transformation that all of it has stopped being fresh to you. I want to just invite us to repent of that and to say, Jesus, I need you to make this fresh again. Jesus, I need you to help me see what you're really saying and to take your word seriously with fresh eyes. And just one last thing on this. I want to just point out uh, the fact that you know, there's this baptism. And, and I just wanted to, to, to have us look at who actually comes and is baptized by John. It says here in verse 5, uh, "...the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him." confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So it seems like, okay, everyone is coming out to John, they're all being baptized, right? Well, not really. If you flip over to um, some of the other Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, I just want to read you one little bit here. Uh, This is, you don't need to turn here, but this is Luke chapter 7. And this is something uh, that uh, is just sort of parenthetical. It goes, you know, it's talking about John's baptism. It says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Kind of interesting little detail. What that's saying is that, look, these tax collectors who are like the outcasts, who are the, the compromisers, who are the, the bad people, these guys are willing to get baptized by John because they're willing to admit that they are in need. But then you've got the Pharisees who are all the people with all the knowledge. You know, they're probably the people who are most like us. And they're the ones who say, thanks but no thanks, I don't need it. I already have all this stuff mastered. I already do all the religious things. I don't need it. And you know what Luke says? It says that they rejected God's purpose for themselves. There's a pattern in the Christian life and it's repentance and faith, repentance and faith. You never are gonna be able to say, I've got it all figured out now. And I have nothing more to learn. Every single step of, of, of following Jesus is a step of saying, Lord, you know, I know you a little, but not nearly as well as I should. You know, Lord, I know you a little, but I have so much more to learn. It's so much more in which to grow. Where are you in that tonight? Are you someone who's kind of, you know, sort of stopped realizing just kind of how much God still has in store for you? You know, like Paul says, uh, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which God took hold of me. He's saying, I'm not satisfied with where I am. I'm not satisfied with just having a bunch of information. If I don't actually get transformed, like if I don't actually see the power of God at work in my life, if I don't actually experience being filled with the Spirit, and actually seeing him work through me, maybe even through supernatural things like signs and wonders, then that's not enough. Like I, I'm going to be starving until I finally am able to, to, to go on and, and kind of make it to the next thing that God has for me. So number one, there's an announcement. Number two, there's an acknowledgement. And then finally, number three, there's an invitation. And for this, just look, uh, look really quick um, at verses 14 and 15. Uh, This is where uh, it says John was put in prison and then Jesus kind of picks up where John left off. He goes into Galilee, he proclaims the good news and says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. Like turn away from feeling like you have it all figured out. Turn away from feeling like you are sufficient in and of yourself yourself. And and turn to me and admit your need for me. Uh, You know, in uh, the book of Galatians, Paul says that the secret to the Christian life is to live in such a way that it's not you who's living, but it's Christ living through you. He says, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And if you think about, uh, you know, Christ starts with the letter C. A C is actually just an I that's kind of been bent. You know, you sort of imagine the letter I, you kind of bend it at both ends. It becomes a C. And, and if you want to actually have um, the life of Christ lived out through you, it means that your will has to be bent. It has to be broken. Uh, as someone once said, worship supposes the will broken. And it means this invitation um, to, 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 to a life where, where you're not the one on the throne. Uh, you're not the one in the driver's seat. You know, someone said that uh, if 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 your if your life is your car, then uh, you know it's easy to think that well, Jesus is in the driver's seat, sure, but you know, like I'm in the passenger seat, kind of helping him navigate. Well, no. Uh, Or you could say, well, Jesus is in the driver's seat and I'm in the back seat, and I'm uh, you know I'm just along for the ride. Well, no, because we're backseat drivers. What really is is kind of the, the the state of things is that Jesus should be in the front seat and like we should be in the trunk because he just does not need our help. He doesn't need our help. And so worship supposes the will broken. It supposes like if you want to be someone who has Christ with a capital C living in you, then you have to take kind of the eye of yourself, your will, your agenda, your way, and saying, God, not my way, but your way. Not my way, but your way. So he says, repent and believe. So so it's not just repent. It's also believe, you know, if you just turn away from old things, but then you don't replace that with Jesus, then you'll just be left empty. But Jesus concludes his, 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 his little one-sentence sermon by saying, repent and believe the good news. And there's an invitation in that. Um, and the invitation is to believe the good news. I mean, what is the good news? Well, well, if you look at the section just before it's it 's uh, the story of Jesus' baptism i 'm not going to really dwell on this, but this is a little little encapsulation of the good news. You know Jesus comes and he's baptized by John not because Jesus is a sinner in need of repentance, but because Jesus was allowing baptism to be a picture of who he was and what he came to do, because on the cross, Jesus underwent a baptism that was way more Serious than any kind of baptism in water. He went through the baptism of God's judgment, where all of God's waves and breakers of judgment swept over Jesus. And he bore in his own body and his own soul all of the consequences for every wrong thing that any one of us, any human being who's ever lived, has ever done. The Bible says he took up our griefs, he carried our sorrows. And so Jesus underwent the the true baptism of God's judgment so that we would never have to go through that. It says a little bit later on that after that, he's cast out by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And did you know that the word that's used there to describe Jesus being cast out into the wilderness is the same word that's used um, in the Old Testament to refer to Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden? Jesus was cast out by the Spirit to endure the opposition of Satan, to to, to suffer there, to be hungry, to be starving, so that we who were cast out of the Garden of Eden could be welcomed back into God's paradise. And Jesus says that the gospel, the rhythm of a follower of Jesus is every day this pattern of repent and believe, repent and believe. And believe. Admit that I don't fit inside your boxes. Believe that like you need my boxes. You need me for who I really am. Not just the God that you want me to be, the God that I really am. And so, I just want to invite you to that tonight. Um, we're going to be spending the next number of months in this gospel. Why waste it? You know, why look at all of these amazing accounts of who Jesus was and what he did and what he said and just have it be old and routine, Uh, So tonight, would you just, I actually want to do this. We're going to have the band come up and play one more song before we transition into small groups here. Uh, But I actually want to just have us uh, take a minute um, to respond um, to this word. Um, And so as the band is coming up, I actually want us just to take one minute. um, And to take that one minute, just to to have us sit in silence, and I want you just to um, ponder kind of what this word means for you. Maybe even just ask God, like, God... um, What does this mean for me? What are the things that you're inviting me to turn away from? What are the ways that you're inviting me um, to look at you in a fresh way again? So we're just going to take a minute here of silence to ponder that. And then um, we're going to have one last song before we transition to small groups. Father, thank you for um, this word. Thank you for this book we're going to be looking at. Would you use it um, to transform us? In Jesus' name, amen.